Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Anthony Christian Ocampo, sociology professor at Cal State Pomona and author of Brown and Gay in L.A., The book is a collection of true stories profiling second-generation immigrant gay men coming of age in Los Angeles. Under the weight of tradition, conformity, heteronormativity, and repression, they seek community and chase their own dreams while navigating between old-school families and promising new friendships. Anthony and I talked today about his choices to write for all audiences and throw academic pretension to the wind. We also talk about his own life as a gay Filipino-American growing up in L.A., and of course, we talk about books. Anthony will be back on October 26th for the Stacks Book Club discussion of Ferris by Meredith Toulousan. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of the Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love the show and want more of it, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join the Stacks back. The Stacks is an independent podcast, which means I rely on listeners like you to make the show possible week in and week out. By joining the Stacks Pack, you affirm our mission to uplift great books, often books by folks who are underestimated in the publishing world, and you earn perks like our monthly virtual book club, bonus episodes, this past month's was with Kiese Lehman, and access to our Discord, plus a whole lot more. If you'd like to be part of this wonderful bookish community, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join. Thank you to our newest member of the Stacks Pack, Nicole Haygood. Thank you so much, Nicole, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. Now it's time for my conversation with Anthony Christian Ocampo. All right, everyone. I'm so excited today. I am joined by Anthony Christian Ocampo, who is a sociologist, a professor, an author, and I have to throw this out there, a member of the Stacks Pack, an OG lover of the Stacks Pack. I'm so excited that you're here. Anthony, welcome to the Stacks. I'm excited to be here because this podcast is what got me through pandemic, I swear. Oh, I'm going to cry already. I know you tweeted at me like last year being like, just going to shoot my shot. Would love to come on the show. And I was like, this is my dream. Would love for you to come on the show. So I'm glad that like almost a year later, it's finally, or maybe that was earlier this year, but it's finally happening. It is. Um, For people who don't know you, who aren't familiar with your work at all or anything, can you just, I should have said, Anthony is also the author of the brand new book, Brown and Gay in LA, The Lives of Immigrant Sons, which we will get to. But for now, will you just sort of tell folks a little bit about yourself? 
Yeah, absolutely. I am Filipino American. I identify as queer. I'm a Los Angelino. Uh, I'm actually like from LA. My driver's license and all my addresses have been Los Angeles. I'm not like I'm not from like Irvine or anything, but um, Los Angeles. No shots. No shots fired. <laughs> and Northeast LA. I just want to specify I'm from Northeast LA. Okay. Uh, I'm an only child, so okay. I'm sure that'll come up at some point. And um, let's see what else can I say. Oh, I'm a professor of sociology at um, California State Polytechnic University in Pomona. Um, what else? I love dogs. I have a pet. and uh, A pet I dog? I have a pet dog versus like... You said you said I love dogs and you said I have a pet. So I was like, is it a snake? Is it a dog? No, 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 no. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful chocolate cocker spaniel named Schmidt. Named after Schmidt from New Girl. Oh my gosh. Love Schmidt from New Girl. Love his line about mango chutney. Quick <laughs> Schmidt story. He was at a restaurant with myself and my husband and my god daughter on my birthday one year and my husband took my goddaughter to the bathroom and Schmidt was in there and <laughs> Mr. Sachs got so excited that he just thrust the child into Schmidt's hands for a photograph and was like oh my god my wife loves you so then they all come out of the bathroom together and Schmidt's like hey thanks for your thanks for supporting my work or something and I was like what the fuck because like I like him but Mr. Sachs loves him and so he basically lied to Schmidt and was like my wife's obsessed with you so he comes out and was like thanks for supporting oh, no. my work and I was like you're welcome oh my anyways, god big fan Max Green I think is his real name yes yes anyways so, anyways anyway. long story short about Schmidt okay we're going to dive into your book, Brown and Gay in L.A. It's really fucking good. It's an academic book, but it's not written like an academic book, which is the first thing that I want to talk to. In your acknowledgments, you thanked someone for saying, like, you thank someone saying, basically, thank you for helping me make the science as beautiful as the writing or the writing as beautiful as the science. And I want to know, it's not a direct quote, but it's close. I want to know how and why it was important for you to write an academic text in a way that a lay person like me could read and appreciate. Right. Uh, so my entree into writing books was because, uh, and I think a lot of any like minoritized writers say this, they wanted to write the book they should have been able to read. I mean, that's a, you know, riffing off Toni Morrison's quote of like, if you right. don't see the book you like, then, you know, you should write it. And so um, that was the reason I wrote my first book, which was about Filipino Americans in Los Angeles there weren't a lot of books that were um, centered on the, the the Filipino experience, particularly the connections between Mexican-Americans and Filipinos, which is what I grew up with in L.A. And right. so um, why I decided to write it the way I did? Well, to be honest, um, that's not how I was trained in, in graduate school. You're trained to write really right. jargony <laughs> using yeah. um, big words. And, you know, you have to start your sentences like, Contrary to what Portes and Rumbaut argue, like that kind of stuff. Right, 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 right. And and for me, I just I didn't want to do that. Um, and part of the reason is in part because of the the campus that I teach, Cal Poly Pomona. You know, this is a campus where my students are parents; they're working full time, um, they're balancing multiple things. And so, I, when I first started teaching there, I started to notice that they would respond really excitedly about um, books and articles that were written in a way that was digestible and they would mm -hmm. kind of like literally not do their reading <laughs> when the reading was okay. um written in a jargony way and i can and, relate and that was me too in undergrad and yeah. <laughs> grad school yeah. for sure so yeah i mean to be honest like i 
I had a rule of thumb in my head where I wanted to write a book that the, a book, the kind of book you would find at like Hudson's at the airport mm-hmm. uh, that you could that you could read over the course of a flight. Or I mean, this may be TMI, but I literally wanted folks to be able to like read the book if they were <laughs> going to the bathroom or like waiting for the bus. Sure. But yeah, I mean, one of the best lessons I learned from my first editor, Jenny Gavash, was that you got to write in a way that gets people to turn the page. And as you know, attention spans are shorter and shorter with each passing day. So um, that's what I wanted to do. Um, On a deeper level, I I couldn't imagine writing a book that like the community I write about wouldn't have been able to read. So uh, I want to write for that, um, you know, teenage, teenage queer kid that's struggling with sexuality or, you know, the, the, the immigrant parent that doesn't know how to be a support for, for their kids. Cause I felt like if I wasn't doing that, then like, what's the point of writing the book in the first place? Yeah. Okay. But so yes, all of that I love, but here's my big question. You are a professor. This is an academic press. How much pushback do you get from academia, from the powers that be that you've written ostensibly an academic text, but it's written for, the regulars like me mm, you would get a lot of pushback i must say uh okay. <laughs> if so generally there was a lot of sort of micro level i don't know what it's called microaggressions where i've had some professors that i absolutely care about say things like oh i think your writing's too personal or you're inserting too much of yourself in it and to be honest it really hurt my feelings because i cared about their opinions a lot sure but sure. to be frank, I think the reason that I was able to write the way I do, it's totally structural. If I was working at a, a UC or if I was at an Ivy League institution, there's absolutely no way that I think I could have gotten away with writing in a way that's as accessible as I did. Because there, right. uh, the merit of your publications and the tenure process is very much driven by what other professors think of you. And obviously, right. they're not going to vibe with someone that cares more about prose. <laughs> right. Right. Luckily, I'm at an institution where uh, the tenure system is based on teaching. And so literally had the creative freedom to write any the any way, any which way I wanted, which I don't think mm. is um, very common for a lot of yeah. faculty. But shockingly, it has been um, it was a scary thing to do when I wrote my first book and even scary to do for this book. But I feel like people are coming around and they kind of like the books that are more accessibly written. Well, so that's sort of like the bigger question, right? Like to you, and I guess maybe you've sort of answered it already, but to you, how important is it that academics are writing for non-academics? Like how, like, cause I think that there's something to be said that academics should be writing for other academics because that's like scholarship and teaching and learning. And that's where the debates can happen. Mm -hmm. But how important is it that, what scholars are thinking about and working through is something that the rest of us can access and understand and also engage with. Right. You know, to be honest, I think that everyone has their battle. So I think that there are academics whose fight is to reshape theoretical frameworks and and like areas of study and disciplines and, and methodologies. And that's, that's a battle that's totally worth fighting. I think for me as someone that went to school uh, went to schools where I never got to learn about Filipinos. I never got to learn about queer people of color, like in the actual classroom, minus mm-hmm. maybe like an ethnic studies class here and there. I just felt like my fight was to make sure that students, regardless of training, or any readers, regardless of training, were able to read about themselves. Um, one of the things that 
I feel really lucky about is I'll, I'll get emails from high school students. I'll get emails from senior citizens that'll write me and say, hey, I read something you wrote and it inspired me to choreograph a, a, a dance or to write well. a play or to, <laughs> to make a documentary. And I just thought like if coming from a community that is very much invisible to the larger mm -hmm. public, anything that gets folks to start creating that's going to be my focus um, for mm -hmm. this book, for the Brown and Gay in LA book. I have one story that kind of really, really anchors why I want to write the book in an accessible way, which was um, one time I was giving a talk at UCLA. And I remember um, it wasn't even about queerness. It was I was just there on campus and I had a, a, a Latino undergrad who happened upon an article that I wrote about what it means to be gay in an immigrant family. And he came up to me and said, you know, I wasn't here for your talk, but I wanted to tell you that <laughs> I just came out to my mom. Mm. And so when I read your article, it was one of the first times I was able to read about my experience. I just started bawling when I read the piece. Mm. And then I gave it to my mom, who wasn't necessarily like, okay, with me being gay. And then she started crying. And then we mm. sat down and read it together. And then we both started crying. And I thought, um, how how gorgeous that like... There was like a young person that could use something I wrote as a script for how to navigate one of the most difficult and potentially traumatizing experiences of their life. Ugh, I love that so much. Do you, <laughs> I wasn't think, planning on asking you this, but is there any idea if this book will be translated into Spanish or Tagalog or like anything? Like, do you know? I because I was thinking I mean, about the parents, you know, like because some parents might be able to read like because this book is about the sons of immigrants. So I'm thinking about like the immigrant parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts and like maybe they don't read English. Maybe they speak English, but they can't read it. Like I'm wondering if there's if you have the interest of having it translated. Oh, I would love to. I'm not fluent in either Spanish or Tagalog, but I would I don't mean love... you translating it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, would... I don't oh, mean no. you personally being like, okay, Anthony, it's on you. Figure it out. I just meant like, is that something that's like part of your impulse as well? Yeah. I mean, I have big dreams of, uh, first of all, it's going to be an audio book, which I think is going to be great okay. for, for folks that may not have the time to like sit down with the physical book. Uh, that's coming out in October, thankfully. Okay. And to the publisher's credit, they were like, we want to make sure that the narrator is... Um, a queer man of color, like the people that you write about. So that's amazing. Love it. And with Spanish and Tagalog translation, oh my gosh, like I have always dreamed of my books, like showing up in the Philippines or in Mexico, but I feel like I haven't, the publication date is like literally happening in like five days. But um, yeah, absolutely. I think that if my goal is to target immigrant families, I have absolutely have to figure out a way to translate it in Spanish or, or in Tagalog for those that, you know, can't access it any other way. Yeah, totally. Okay. We did a, I did a, we, I did a terrible job of like talking about the book before I dived into my questions, which is something that happens when I'm really excited about a book. So really quickly, can, can you actually just tell we're 15 minutes into the episode? Can you just tell people at home what Brown and Gay in LA is about? For sure. Brown and Gay in LA is a book that chronicles the coming of age experiences of sons of immigrants living in LA, um, Filipinos, Mexican-Americans, other, other Latinx groups, and basically walks through their, you know, over the course of their life, seeing how 
sexuality, but also race and class affect every aspect of their lives, from family to neighborhood life to school life to their experiences in the gay scene. So in a nutshell, that's what uh, the book's about. And you talked to over 60 uh, gay, brown, and gay men in L.A., Mm -hmm. or from L.A., or have been living in L.A., or currently living in L.A., sort of a combination of people who some parts of their lives were spent in L.A., whether they were there for college or their college and on, or if they were there growing up and went away to college or whatever. How did you come to your subjects? So I guess this question has like a thousand tentacles because as I was reading, I was like, how did he get this person? How do you get that person? But I guess the first one is brown and gay in L.A. It's not Filipino and gay in L.A. Why did you want to include both Asian and Latinx voices? And did you consider including black voices or was that too like how did you decide how small or big to make the pool, I guess? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, to be honest, like part of what inspires me to, to to write books or to pursue something for a research study is whenever I encounter people that I don't feel get their due in whatever mm-hmm. space that I'm in. So in sociology in particular, there's there's these broader conversations about immigration and race where um, you hardly ever hear about the experiences of folks who are LGBTQ. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, in sexuality studies, you can imagine it's very white. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you yeah. do talk about race, <laughs> maybe you'll talk about like one black person that the researcher interviewed or something. And so to be honest, like the 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 subjects of the book very much reflect um, the social network where I found myself embedded within. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, you know, in my 20s, those was my, the years I was coming out. It was also the years I was in grad school at UCLA. And so literally my life would be like, go to class, go to study groups, and then go to, you know, some gay club at 10 o'clock at night and like literally every day. And so it was um, in some ways my desire to like weld these two worlds that weren't, you know, in conversation with each other. And also in, you know, I think what folks, what I got to remember is that when I started this book, I was very much anchored in the discipline of sociology. Nowadays, I Mm kind of consider myself more of like a writer, nonfiction writer. But in sociology, there's very um, prescribed rules for how to design a study. So it's often the mm-hmm. case that you have to have comparative, um, you have to compare two groups because oh, it helps you see the similarities, but also it, you can see differences. So mm-hmm. uh, in the book, I talk about how like maybe Filipinos and Mexican-Americans have similar family experiences because of the Catholic thing, but because of the way they're treated in schools differently, you know, the strategies they have for surviving being queer in school can look a little bit different. Uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned about like including black folks into the study because throughout the course of, you know, me being in the scene and just like my my social circle, there's obviously um, black queer people there. Mm-hmm. Like, and, mm-hmm. and I think like for me, it was a matter of wanting to, um, so in my area of sociology, my area of expertise is children of immigrants. And so mm-hmm. I think it was focused uh, primarily on that segment of the population. But I imagine if I was like in New York and had access to like Washington Heights or, I see, you know, yeah. um, there were more, um, for example, like queer sons of Nigerian immigrants or Caribbean immigrants, then that would have been a dope study. Yeah. Well, that sort of brings me to my next question, which is like L.A., Obviously, LA is a huge part of this book. It's in the title. It's the <laughs> it's the location. 
How do you think the book changes if it's brown and gay in Chicago? Like, do you think that you can write this book in those places? Do you think that there's something specific about L.A.? Or is that just because that's where you're from and that's where you are? Yeah, I mean, I am a Los Angelino at heart in so many yeah. ways. Like, <laughs> I am I am, I am, am a ride-or-die Los Angelino. And so I just really love writing about, like, I think region is really important. So that's why I was yeah. anchored there. Um, you know, I've I've spent time in Chicago and New York and in the queer um, POC scenes there. But I, I don't know about you, but I feel like I am not comfortable writing about something where I, unless I feel like I am like embedded yes. in that community because it feels like I'm like mining or sure, like, like voyeuristic ex- or something voyeuristic. And I don't want to do that. Um, yeah. And to be honest, like I'll be uh, I'll to speak very practically early on in my career, when I thought I was going to be at um, like a research university, I had huge ambitions of doing this study, comparing experiences in different cities. Um, mm. Like, like uh, what would it be like to be in, in the South, for example, which sure. is obviously a super important experience, but on a completely practical level, you know, I wrote this book when I was, in my first couple of years of being, or I started when I was my first couple of years of being a professor and going to the tenure process. And we teach a lot at the Cal State yeah. system. And it's just, you know, to even do a, like a study in LA, that, that was already taxing on me. So, um, and I'm also very like control freak. I, I'm not a type <laughs> of researcher that likes assigning uh, undergrads to do my research for me. Because, yeah, I just don't think it yields the same sort of, conversations oh my god I have okay I'm like looking at my questions right now and I'm freaking out because I have so many questions I want to ask you and I thought I'd like turn them down no I'm like we're gonna run out of time I'm gonna try (laughs) to get as many as I can in but we'll see I'm nervous um I'm nervous too because I'm on this podcast and it is don't be nervous oh my gosh no don't be nervous okay (sighs) I want to ask one more question that I don't think really came up in the book but I'm curious if it came up and it just like didn't make it in or it didn't come up at all One of the things that I have heard from my black queer friends and my brown friends who are not necessarily queer is about anti-blackness in their communities. So I've heard about a lot of anti-blackness in queer communities and a lot of anti-blackness in other brown communities. And I'm wondering, you sort of talk about race later in the book. I mean, not sort of, you, you talk about it a lot in the book, but there's a part when we get to like white, gay, West Hollywood, where we talk about like the racism of like white, gay men. We're talking about these nightclubs, whatever. I'm wondering if any of the subjects that you spoke to talked about any like anti-blackness that came up for them, because there are parts where people that you spoke to talked about sort of this internalized homophobia. It comes up in a few different ways about like being one of the good ones, you know, being a Will and not a Jack or whatever, like this kind of thing of like, mom, don't worry, I'm not that kind of gay. So I'm wondering if there was any like, you know, racism or racistness, racistness, racism that came up intra-community that you that you saw or noticed. That's a good question. You know, there were a number of respondents who had dated Black men, for example, and there was part of me that wondered whether some of the experience that you see with like heterosexual dating where like they're afraid that the parents would 
react yeah. a certain way to a black partner. I I had actually thought that would come up, but for the for the men that were dating, for the the brown men that were dating black men or had dated black men, that wasn't that didn't you know come up as an issue with their families. And I don't know if it's it could be like social desirability. They don't want their fronting that their families. Right, 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 right. Because right. let me just keep it real. I have no shortage of data points where I've heard Asian, like non-Black, Latinx folks, um, Filipino folks, um, immigrant parents say things that, are, you know, right. are, are very obviously anti-Black. Like things like, oh, that place is, you know, it's a Black neighborhood. Like, it's awful right. stuff. Yeah. And, and I think, like, one thing that I have noticed, not just in this book, but over the course of interviewing children of immigrants is that whenever that happens in the context of immigrant families and communities, I'm glad that a lot of children of immigrants feel compelled to like come at their parents or shame, shame, shame people that say those sorts of things mm, or, or call them out. I, I've actually, I see that more than folks call out, but at the same time, I'm not trying to romanticize people either. Sure. You know, it's one thing to like post black lives matter on your Twitter, but then mm-hmm. to be completely unaware of who Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, I think that people of color, non-Black people of color are just as capable as doing the lip service thing as, you know, the Abbey having Black Lives Matter flags. And so, and I do think it is a matter of like, perhaps when the interviews happen, they happen between 20, actually, no, I can't even use, I can't even say that because they're already like Black Lives Matter was already in the news. But I do think to your point, if I did an ethnography, for ex- ethnography, for example, as opposed to interviews, I could imagine that there would be folks for whom there might be hesitations about dating a black person because they think it will somehow ding their ding them, and they're already struggling to gain acceptance from their families. Yeah. Absolutely, the case that there were moments where they talked about anti-blackness in Mexico, anti-blackness in the Philippines, one hundred percent. Okay, just because you said it and I guess this is like a question that I should have asked in the beginning what's the difference between interviews and ethnography oh yeah yeah interviews <laughs> is uh you <laughs> interviews it, this is the big debate in sociology so um, okay well keep me. it keep it for the layman sure. out here <laughs> right interviews you literally show up at a Starbucks or a cafe or someone's house and you you have a, a rough list of questions and you ask them and people provide their answers right mm-hmm ethnography are focused a lot more on people's behavior. Yeah, you record what people say, but you know, if like, if someone says like, I'm willing to date anyone in an interview and then you follow, if you do an ethnography and you see them at a gay club and you see that they're just not giving the time of day to certain I see people of different races, then that's the benefit of ethnography is you can actually match up what people say to what they actually do. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question about the book for now. I think that we'll talk about the book more when we talk about Ferris, uh, our book club pick for the month, because mm-hmm. I think that there's going to be a lot of crossover. So I have a, I have things that I'm holding on to for that. But for now, my last question, which is something that you also just brought up, you started the book, you started doing the research and the interviews for the book in 2012. Uh, I believe that you said that you sort of finished it up in 2018, 20, 2016. 2016, between 2016 and 2022, a whole lot of shit has happened. Are there any things that if you could go back 
and extend the study or if you could do an addendum when your when your paperback or whatever comes out or your next version, your 10 year anniversary, what are the things that you wish you could have asked about or things that have informed your thinking since that you would be curious to have in this book from the last six years? For sure. I think just because of age, right? I think that there's a lot of questions I didn't get to about what family formation looks like. Some of the people mm. that I interviewed are starting to like adopt kids, foster kids. And so that's a whole oh, line yeah. of conversation, like queer sure. fathering. That's a, that's a huge thing that I think even like I'm struggling to understand for myself. And so uh, right. I, I actually had originally thought that um, I was going to interview a set of parents, but I just didn't end up doing that. I thought maybe save it for the next one. But yeah, uh, but to be honest, one thing I wish I did better uh, in the last one is I didn't really dive into how Grinder and Geo app, like oh, how smartphones completely mm-hmm. change the dynamics of how gay life functions in L.A. That's like an entire book. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah. Or it could be, I mean. Wow. That's so I didn't I didn't even think oh. of that, but of course. Oh. Could I add one more? Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Um, as you get to know, I mean, I'm not just as you get to like you have gay friends that are partnered or coupled. One issue I really wish I I one day I'll write a whole book on it is um non monogamy among oh, yeah. gay couples. Because Ooh, it is it's it's not that common that I run into um, and it's not something they speak out about it out loud necessarily beyond like set of friends, but like there's a lot of stuff that happens beyond the two partners that I think is like super fascinating. And it's mm-hmm. not that like, it's not a matter of gay men being like quote unquote more promiscuous, but I think like there's a lot of polyamorous gay men out there that I think, um, could teach us something about communicate like communication and ethical, ethical ways of going about a relationship. Oh my God. That's another whole book that I would love to read. Um, Okay. I said that was the last thing I was going to say. I'm going to say one more really quick thing. You don't have to respond to this. I just want to say this to the world. One of the things that I loved about this book is that you are a character or a person in the book. You show up, you let us know about your life and your experiences. And you say like, oh, I can relate to what this person said, or like, that wasn't my experience. And I think that that's really powerful when we're talking about authority, because you are uh, professor, you are the authority on this subject. You've written the book, and you're saying these experiences happen to me. So therefore, you're like lending credence to your subjects, and I just really, really love that, especially because we're talking about queer people, brown people, sons of immigrants. Like we're talking about people who don't often get to be the authority. I am sure the academics of the world are like, this is blah. But for me, oh my gosh, it was like. It was revolutionary. I just, I loved it so, 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 so much. So thank you for doing that. Tracy, can I say one thing about that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was taught to do that by my very first creative nonfiction teacher. I and have you may one guess. I have one guess who that is. Kiese <laughs> uh, Lehman. Uh, yeah. First writing experience, first writing class ever. He was like, yo, where are you in this book? There's not enough Ooh. mention of you in that inserting yourself in that book, it's going to matter tremendously. Yes. And so um, thank you, Kiese. <laughs> a genius. And with that, we'll take a <laughs> quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last 
three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Okay, we're back. You listen to the show, so you're familiar. This is the Ask the Stacks segment. Someone has written into Ask the Stacks at thestackspodcast.com. They've asked us a question. We're going to recommend books for them. So I picked this one because this person and you have some connection, not personally, but just in your life stories. This comes from Christina. Christina says, I used to love reading nonfiction, especially about social justice issues in the U.S. and other countries or biography memoirs about people who have made an impact on an issue. However, since grad school, that's the connection, when I had to read so much for class, I haven't been able to pick up nonfiction for fun anymore. I would love some recommendations for books that might be able to spark that interest again and get me back into the nonfiction world. I'm going to give Christina three-ish recommendations. If you want to give her one, two, or three, that's up to you. Would you like me to go first or do you already know what you're going to say? Yes, you can go. You can go. Okay, I'll go first and then you can go. So first up, I'm picking a book that I literally just finished yesterday. It's called Bad City by Paul Pringle. And it's a he's an LA Times investigative journalist and he's writing about LA and the USC uh, medical school dean like 
fucking clusterfuck that was the man who was giving methamphetamines to young people and prostitutes and drug dealers. And it was a whole shit show and USC like covered it up and the Times covered it up. And it's like this crazy story. My next pick is one of my favorite books. It's Breathe by Imani Perry. It is just, it's a letter to her sons. It's just the most beautiful writing. It's short and sweet. I'm giving you like a really big range of nonfiction books because the first one's like this thriller kind of nonfiction caper. This Imani Perry is like very memoir, very lush, beautiful, but again, it's short, so it'll feel manageable. And then my last one, if you're just like not feeling nonfiction right now, but you want to get back in is to find some sort of book that's like on a subject that you love. So I don't know if you love The Office or not, but I do. And I read the oral history of The Office called The Office by Andy Green. And it was really, really fun. And so like a book like that, or like maybe a book on Bachelor Nation, there's a book called Bachelor Nation. There's that oral history of The Wire. But I feel like oral history is like a really fun way to get back into nonfiction. So I'm sort of giving you like 20 recommendations in one there, including the one on 9-11 by Garrett M. Graff, and I'm blanking on the name. Um, anyways, it's really good. I can't think of it. I'm going to Google it. Um, Anthony, you go, and I'll tell everyone what it's called when I get back. <laughs> All right. So nonfiction, to get you back into um, reading nonfiction, the number one book I got to recommend, Saeed Jones, How We Fight for Our Lives. Ah, uh, so good. <laughs> so fucking good. That book is, I mean, just saying the title, I like feel like I'm going to start tearing up because that book is everything. Poets who write prose are everything. Um, if you want something that's like just something that really got me back to reading in general, it was a nonfiction book by Ross Gay called Book of Delights. Oh, yeah. People love that. It's, it's a gorgeous book. And, you know, I, I think another one I'll recommend is... Um, Let's throw in a Filipino writer. I think uh, Dear America by Jose Antonio Vargas. Oh, yeah. One. I've not read that, but I've heard, I have it and I've heard it's fantastic. Yeah. And not memoiry books. I would say one cool book is uh, the book Ace by Angela Chen. It's about asexuality. Yes. We did that on the show. Angela was on. Oh, that's right. In 2020, I think. 2020 or 2021. Love, Angela. Okay, I thought of, I, I didn't think of it. I Googled the name. It's called The Only Plane in the Sky by Garrett M. Graff. And it's mm. an oral history of 9-11. And it's phenomenal. Okay, now we get to talk about your books. We start here always, two books you love, one book you hate. I'll start with the one I hate. Yeah. It's that Mark Madsen um, asshole book. What's that title of that book? It's that orange book that you see everywhere on the New York Times. Oh, bestseller. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's not the how How to Not Give a Fuck book, is it? Oh, I think that's the title. Yeah, anyway. And to be honest, um, and then there's that, like, that quintessential Bible for, like, white girl self-help. Um, yes. What's yes. that book the, called? The Jen Sincero's book. You're a badass. It's You're a badass is the Jen Sincero. And then it's the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Is that the one you're talking about? Yes. Cause By Mark Manson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that me book, some self-help yeah. books, but any books that, like, okay. totally forget structure. Anyway. Two books I love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I already said Saeed's book. Um, I, I I really loved um, Crying in H Mart. was amazing. Oh. Um, and I love, to be honest, How the Word is Passed oh, by Clint so Smith. Good. And yeah. um, let's see. Jakira Diaz's Ordinary Girls. 
Mm, I still haven't read that. So I read, okay, I have one, I've read one, and I didn't like one. I did not like Crying in H Mart. <gasps> I couldn't get into it. I think I'm like the one of five people on the face of the earth. But for whatever reason, I was just like, no, thank Like, I just, I don't know. It didn't do it for me. What do you think it uh, was? But I don't, I think partially because I've lost a parent at around the same age as her. And I just like didn't feel like she got into the stuff that I was like feeling or like wanting her to get into. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, obviously her experiences were different than mine. I liked how she wrote about food. I liked some of it. I just like people were really taken with it. And for some reason for me, it just didn't, didn't do what I wanted. I might, maybe I went in with too much expectation, you know, you never know. Mm-hmm. Anyways, what's the last just like great book you've read? A YA novel, Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets okay. of the Universe. I, I laughed and cried on that one. Oh, okay. What are you reading right now? I am reading a book by Aaron Aceves. It's called This Is Why They Hate Us. And it's about a queer kid in Boyle Heights, California. Mm, interesting. Nonfiction or fiction? YA. It, it's a novel. YA. Yeah, okay. fiction. Oh, okay, got it. Do you read multiple books at once or just one thing at a time? Oh, my gosh. I am promiscuous. You took a picture of my nightstand. Right. It's like a bunch of books <laughs> with like folded over <laughs> at the page I left off at. I am. I just can't read. Oh, you fold the corners? I am a, I am a fold the wow. corner kind of girl. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. This episode of the sex is now officially over. We can't ever talk again. Oh my God. I'm dis- I'm disgusted. I'm distraught. I can't handle it. Um, how do you balance reading like sociology, academic things with reading like for pleasure things? Oh my gosh. When you have a PhD in sociology, you're so good at skimming sociological books okay. for the main point. <laughs> yeah. And so there is absolutely no like digesting sociology text. If I need to read something because it's a study, you know, I just kind of read the methods and the findings and get what I need. Um, Got it. And so to be honest, like I, I prefer to read like creative writers that talk about race or sexuality. To be honest, I think they render it in a way that's more accurate than say like, Mm. a quantitative study but obviously you got to do both um so yeah i'm a skimmer when it comes to sociology texts okay what books are you looking forward to reading they can either be books that are coming out soon or books that you just like know you want to read oh my gosh this is a tough one i would i am so bad about writing about culture and music i i i want to read that hanif abduriki book Uh, about tribe called quest Oh, okay, 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 okay. He's such uh, a good writer. I I know. I have this pet project of wanting to like write about my like the nineties through the lens of music, and obviously like Hanif's mm. book is the model for how to do that. Totally. Okay, how do you decide what you're gonna read next? Do you have like friends that you trust? Do you read the New York Times book review? Do you just go into a bookstore? Like, how do you decide what's what you're gonna pick up? I'm very much inclined to nonfiction, just like you. Like, it is very okay, much like, out. I am terrible at reading fiction. I'm just not, like, I'm never compelled to do it. Um, and so there's part of me that's trying to force myself to do it, but uh, it doesn't work. But anyway, I'm starting to read a lot of YA. That's been my jam lately. In terms of books, um, to be honest, I, I am like, I the influence influencers influence. So I, whatever... Whatever you say you're reading, to be honest, like, <laughs> I, I'm not even trying to, like, uh, blow smoke up your ass. Like, it, 
your tastes and guests signal to me that we'll have similar tastes in books. And so I, I end up getting a lot of what you, you, I love that. you do. So I have the, the well, I get a lot of what I read from my guests. So yeah. it's definitely <laughs> even trade. Um, what's a book? Oh, go ahead. No, no. I just love how you're like brutally honest about your reactions to books. Cause sometimes I feel like, Oh my gosh, like Tracy said what I was thinking, but I felt like I wasn't allowed to say <laughs> about like, certain books (laughs) i my like new goal in life is to get more people to talk more openly about things that they don't like in books i i truly think that talking bad about books would be good for the book industry i feel very strongly about this this is like my new obsession i think about it constantly i have to figure out a way to talk about it more publicly because i don't want to hurt people's feelings yeah but i just think about like tv and movies and how much of the discourse online and in person is about things that you don't like just as much as it's about things that you do like Mm -hmm. and like when i say i didn't really like the white lotus I don't think that Mike White is like going to go home and cry about it. But if I say I didn't like something in someone's book, it's like you're being mean to authors. And I'm like, no, that's how we talk about art. So I appreciate that you appreciate my frankness because every time I talk bad about a book, everyone on Instagram unfollows me. I People send me messages about how I'm being mean. And I'm like, no, this is we need robust discourse around uh-huh. art. I just feel so strongly. Anyways, you didn't ask. I'm just venting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what's something, what's a book that you love to recommend to people? Uh, gosh, I already said Saeed Jones, so it'd be kind of like overkill. And I know you always recommend heavy. I do. So I'm going to go with a different, a totally different angle. And I'm going to recommend um, short story collections because this is like my okay. gateway drug into reading fiction. Okay. Um, After Parties by the late Anthony Vianza. So, oh, okay. Um, I loved Fiona and Jane by Jean Chen Ho. Okay. Totally. Okay. Like these are, and of course, Lot by Brian Washington. Ugh, so good. Any book where the city is as much a character as the people, mm, I like, I'm that. all about it. I get a sense of that from your book. Interesting. <laughs> hmm. um, what's the last really good book someone recommended to you? My Time Among the Whites. It's an essay collection. Oh, yeah. I've heard of this. Mm-hmm. It was really good. It was. It, it's good. Okay. I like it. It's a very short book. And it's about, for anyone that's been like the only in like all white spaces and has ever felt like you're mm. going bananas and like need a way to make sense of it, that book's pretty darn good. Oh, I like that. Okay. Are you a person who sets reading goals for yourself? <laughs> if so, what are they? no not at all no uh, my okay. only reading goal is to read all the books i buy because i don't want to be one of those people oh i'm one of those people <laughs> how could i can't possibly keep up with everything that i want to own i'm really bad that's why i got a little free library because i was like at least i can pay it forward to someone else how do you organize your books size oh yeah wow that's yeah. In- i don't think i've ever heard of that before mm-hmm. interesting Listen, I'm a bicolor person, so I think people talk, talk so much shit about bicolor people that I'm like, however you organize sounds fantastic to me. Yeah. Um, and I have my faves. So this bookshelf, this like corner bookshelf over here, mm-hmm. all my faves. So like all my favorite like Filipino and POC writers are all over there. And then all the like boring sociology books are over here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. So you also organize them by things that you want to read and things that you think are boring. Love this for you. 
<laughs> What's your ideal reading setup? Where would you be? Beverage, snack, time of day, temperature, location? I hate the heat, so I need to be in an air-conditioned room oh, wearing okay. a baggy hoodie on okay. not a recliner, but one of those like Ikea chair, like those Ikea chairs that are kind of like diagonal yeah. and bent back with my <laughs> yeah. feet up. I know. Yeah. And um, yeah, I need to do that. And I can't have any noise. I don't like reading okay. when there's background noise or music, none of that. Oh, okay. And alone. Snacks and beverages? <sighs> Tracy, Diet Coke. Okay, obviously we've talked uh -huh. about Diet Coke in our personal lives. Mm -hmm. um, can, okay, wait, can I tell you a diet soda story really quick? Yes. This is, I'm really jumping the shark today. We went to Lake Tahoe a few weeks ago, and one of the problems with having small children is, like, they have to eat at a certain time. It's not like adults <laughs> where it's like, okay, I'm hungry, but, like, I can wait till we get to the house or whatever. We had landed the plane. The plane was delayed. It was dinner time. So we were like, where can we go and get them food? So we went to Taco Bell and I was like, oh, my God, all I want after this flight is a Diet Coke. Well, if you go to Taco Bell, which I don't normally, you know that they're a Pepsi family. What the fuck? I hate Diet Pepsi. So I get this drink. I'm like so excited. I see that it's Pepsi. And then I see Diet Mountain Dew. And let me just tell you. It was the greatest beverage of my life. No, that I, sounds... I think I'm going to become one of those fucking weirdos who has cans of Diet Mountain Dew in her house. Like, you know, people who have like weird drinks and you're like, you had to order that online. And it's like the most bizarre soda ever. Like people who have like Diet Vanilla Cherry Coke. And I'm like, what? You have that on hand? That's going to be me. But with Diet Mountain Dew, it was so good. It's the color of a fucking highlighter. It's insanely sweet and delicious. And it was Diet. And I... I had like three cups of it. Oh my God, I cannot. That's like telling me you have cactus cooler <laughs> in your fridge. It was so good. I just want to, people open up your hearts to diet Mountain Dew, the new drink of champions. Though the next day I immediately found a Diet Coke. That being said, okay, what's your favorite bookstore? Oh gosh, I got a shout out. Belcanto Books in Long Beach is an indie bookstore, Filipino owned. It's the only oh, yeah. bookstore in America besides Philippine Expressions and San Pedro that has like a whole Filipino author section. So oh, they're wow. everyone you can think of. Meredith Toulousan, Matt Ortile, uh, Randy Ribe, um, Albert Samaha, like, and of course, like, uh, like Aaron and Trada Kelly, like every genre of Filipino American lit, you can find at that store. So Belcanto Books, we love you. Of course, I love Skylight in Los Feliz. And there's a used bookstore in Eagle Rock that um, is really wonderful that has a bunch of books. But yeah, I would say those are my, those, those three are my favorite. And what's the last book you purchased? Aaron Aceves. This is why they hate us. Okay. okay. And what's the last book that made you laugh? <gasps> I Can't Date Jesus by Michael Arsenault. <laughs> oh my God. I love that book. What's the last book that made you cry? Oh my gosh. Um, Aristotle and Dante. It's just okay. I, I never got to like be a queer kid falling in love. So yeah. you know. Oh, what's the last book that made you angry? I would have to say the How the Word Is Passed by Clint Smith. That that shit like mm. it's, it's it's super important and enlightening. But oh my god, like any 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 book that reminds you of what this country's actually done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is it, it shit infuriates me. What about the last book where you felt like you learned a lot? Unforgetting by Roberto Lovato. It's 
craft wise, it's pretty darn brilliant because it, it, it's, he's Salvadoran. It's about three points in time. It's like a, he, it's a, it's like a braided book and it's about his experience, okay. um, being a Salvadoran American and going back to El Salvador. Just the, imp- oh, that's the last book that made me angry. Just the shit that the United States mm-hmm. did in El Salvador is just fucking unfucking real. So I need to read that. What about a book that you feel proud about having read? There's a book by Albert Samaha. It's a memoir, family memoir called Conception. Mm. And I feel proud that I read it because that book is all about the way colonialism affects Filipino-American families, like literally to this fucking day. It's long. It's intense history-wise, but it welds memoir in it too. But it's it's like if you need to learn about the Filipino experience in one book, that one, I would say. Okay. What about a book that you feel embarrassed about having read? Oh my gosh. There's a lot of self-help books I'm embarrassed to have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's fair. Um, oh, I'm not embarrassed about it, but I think it's kind of funny. When my first okay. boyfriend dumped me over the phone while I was in the Philippines. Uh, him. I know. <laughs> I, bought, I, bought, I read that book. Um, he's not, he's, what's the other one? He's just not that into you? The one before it. It's called a breakup because it's broken. Oh, it's yeah, the yeah. same authors, <laughs> and it's okay. the same theme. But I, I carried that book everywhere because I wanted everyone to know that I was heartbroken. But yeah, oh. <laughs> it was a little embarrassing in retrospect. <laughs> I love that. Um, what's a book that you wish more people knew about? Oh, the one I picked um, to review: "Fairest" by Merit Salusan. Okay, can't we can't wait. That's for book club this month, everyone. So get a copy. I met Meredith at a book event right before COVID in oh February God. 2020. They were like doing like a Viking, whatever publisher was doing like a full thing, and Meredith was there and we got to talk for a moment. So that was really cool. So I'm excited to finally read the book. Do you have a favorite book about where you're from? About Eagle Rock? <laughs> <laughs> about Los sure. Angeles or LA more broadly. I mean, whatever you, however you interpret that. Some people interpret that as like the city that they're from. Cause there's a book about it. And some people interpret it as like California or like mm-hmm. the United States. I mean, very, as broad as you want to go or yeah. as narrow. That's a, that's a great question. I'm going to answer this in a kind of roundabout way. There's a, okay. there's a book by Randy uh, Rivai called patron scene of nothing. And it's, okay. it's about a, a Filipino kid that, you know, goes back to the Philippines um, and trying to discover his identity and whatever. And so um, in, I'm not from the same state as the kid, but to be honest, like that setting of the Filipino family is very familiar to me. I love that. I, I want to ask you, because I don't feel that like Filipino authors are often like spot spotlight are often like, especially mm-hmm. when we're talking about like Asian American authors, I feel like often it's Korean Japanese authors do you feel like that's changing? Because I feel like you've named so many Filipino authors. And so I'm just curious, like, if you've noticed a change as someone who that's obviously like your culture and, and your people. Oh, for sure. I think like as a college student in the 90s and early 2000s, when it came to Filipino books, we had two books. Um, Carlos Bulusan, America's in the Heart, which is like written in the 50s. Mm. And then mm-hmm. Dog Eaters by Jessica Hagedorn. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. But I feel like in the past, even just the past like five, ten years, there's amazing Filipino writers that aren't just talking about being Filipino. So like Amy Nasuka Matatil wrote that book, World of Wonders. She's a poet mm. that writes prose. Um, 
Meredith Toulouson is just one of several Toulouson people yeah. like that have written great books. Um, Meredith's cousin, Grace Toulouson, has written a book called The Body Papers. It's about intergenerational trauma and has themes of sexual assault, which I think are really important to talk about in the context of like immigrant families. Because um, Filipinos don't like airing their dirty laundry. That's a thing. And so I'm glad that like okay. she's very honest. I feel like that's like black and brown people in general. Mm. right don't you yeah, think or do you think sure. it's extra special do you think it's extra filipino thing uh, i think it's I, I think you're right i think it's like across the board um it's the case and i'm liking the cheeky kind of funny humorous books that filipinos are writing matt ortile wrote this wonderful book called the groom shall keep his name or groom oh, will yeah. keep his name and i'm like low-key jealous that like someone at his age was able to write a book and <laughs> it's just he's just doing the damn thing when it comes to his, his writing life so have you read elaine castillo's new book i have it i have it I, I started it but i had to put it down to actually i think to read your book i had to put it down to read something for work but i'm excited by that book H- yeah. how to read now I'm i have really it. excited about it yeah her, her okay, first we'll, we have, to have our own book club about it <laughs> her first book though america's not the heart what mm-hmm. i love about what i love about that book any book that doesn't italicize Filipino words and doesn't translate mm. them, that shit feels like yeah. a gift. Um, so yeah. I love Elaine for that. I love when authors don't italicize words, even though I am a solo linguist. I only speak English, but I fucking love it. I'm like, stick it to the man. Fuck those people. <laughs> like, you you know that shit's not in English. Why does it have to be italicized? The only time I accept it is if the word is a word that is also in the English language, right? Like if it's like the same word, but has a different meaning in another language, which like rarely happens. But if it does, then I'm like, okay, fine. Italicize it because it might mean something different. But otherwise, bye. No, thank you. Um, Okay. What do you feel like is a book that influenced your professional career? Oh, wow. A book, Bad Feminist by Roxane Mm. Gay. Um, I read that book when I was, I was in a fork in the road in my career. I was really trying to do like the research university thing and <laughs> I got like, I just didn't work out. And, um, and then I picked up Bad Feminist when I was on a plane ride for s- some interview or something. And I was like, wow, you can talk about issues of race and gender and sexuality, but like talk about like use the F word and talk about sex. And it just had a, a, a touch of irreverence that I think is, um, I didn't know you could do that. So she kind of opened my eyes to that. Um, I would say Thick is another book that kind of. Oh, um, love Thick. I, I, my dream but she's is. A, to, she's what? a sociologist. Yeah. 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 Um, whenever I get to the point where I want to do essay collection, like for real, for real, um, Thick is going to be my, that's my number one, like, goals is to try to write a book that is in the same vicinity as that. Wow. I mean, what a goal. She's fantastic. Okay. Last one. I stole this from the New York Times. If you could require the current president of the United States of America to read one book, what would you want it to be? Whew. Can I do two? <laughs> yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, so the rules here are loose. Very loose. Oh, God. South America by Iwani Perry. Oh, so good. And another one that kind of gets at the whole, like, you can't understand the U.S. unless you understand the South. Um, Kiesi Lehman's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Not to put a too fine a point on it, but both of those people blurbed your book. So I'm just saying. Oh. 
phenomenal, they, phenomenal, phenomenal blurbs, phenomenal blurbs. They are. I mean, it's so cliche, but like that, the the stuff that they wrote, not even just their books, but like their essays, like just yeah. opened up possibilities. I didn't know shit was possible until I read some of some of their writings, and so that's actually how I found you, is because I was obsessively looking for places where they talked about craft, and both Imani and Kissy mm. were on your show, and then that's how I fell into wow. the stacks. Well, thanks. Thanks, Imani. Thanks, Key. Uh, and thanks, Anthony. Um, we're done today. People in the world, you can get Anthony's latest book, Brown and Gay in L.A., The Lives of Immigrant Sons, now wherever books are sold. It is October as you're listening to this. I'm not exactly sure when the audiobook is coming out, but if it's out, we will link to that as long, along with everything else we talked about in the show notes. And Anthony will be back on October 26th to talk about Ferris by Meredith Pelusan. And I'm really excited. It's a memoir. Meredith is Filipino immigrant, albino, trans, writer, scholar, brilliant thinker, memoirist. So we're going to get into a lot of juicy stuff for a sociologist and a boring, regular, degular like me. So it should get really spicy. I cannot wait. That's October 26th. Anthony, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much to Anthony for being my guest. Don't forget, Anthony will be back on October 26th to help me break down our book club pick, Fairest by Meredith Toulousan. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 